You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So famous last words. Marco Polo's were, I have not seen, or I've not told half of what I've seen. It's kind of fun. Marilyn Monroe's were, you're a really nice guy. Kind of a little mystery around that one, maybe. If you're a Tombstone fan, you know Doc Holliday's were, well, this is funny. Famous last words, right? It kind of makes you think because famous last words have a way of kind of embodying or summarizing all of what someone's life could be about. You sort of read into it a little bit more and and not to sound morbid, but it kind of makes you wonder, what are my own famous last words going to be? Don't obsess over that. could get dark kind of quick, but it does make you think, doesn't it? So this morning is week two out of five of our teaching series called Back to Basics, and we're going to look at some of the last words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Um, This series is really built around one critical but controversial idea. God's word matters. That's the sticking point. It mattered when it was written, it matters now, and it's going to matter tomorrow. And I say critical but controversial because there's a tension that we're wrestling with this morning, whether or not you realize it, and here it is. I believe that language has definite meaning. On the surface, that doesn't sound controversial, but I promise you it is. In a world where language and truth could be anything you want it to be, this morning we're going to push back on that idea and make the case that for language to exist, it has to have definite meaning. And the only way to have this book or the words and the meaning of this book stick in my life is to do three things, is to submit myself to it, to study it as best I can, and to search it out like hidden treasure. I believe that our world needs the truths that are in here. I've said this over and over again these last couple of weeks, but I'll say it again because I'm deeply convinced of it. A chaotic world needs a strong church, and a strong church needs a robust, rich, and rewarding understanding of God's word. The sad truth is that when it comes to becoming a strong church or maybe a strong Christian, one of the most powerful tools is often the most neglected. And so this last week was this dump truck of information on why God's special revelation, his ultimate self-disclosure in his word, is so important. We talked about some roadblocks that many people have that prevent us from really engaging and reading God's word, and I hope it was helpful for you. But this morning, we're going to turn our eyes and our thoughts to some of the last words of the Apostle Paul. And we're really just drilling into one roadblock because it's the biggest one. How can I get at what this thing actually means? Isn't it all subjective? I'm going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you can go ahead and turn there if you want, or if you want, it'll pop up on the screens behind me after just a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 2. These are Paul's last words to Timothy. 
The last words he'd ever write, this letter. So before we dive in too deeply or read it as we will, um, a couple matters of context just to kind of attend to it. First, who was Timothy and how is Paul related to him? So we first meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16, and there's a couple things we need to know about him. First off, Timothy is biracial. The text says that his mom was Jewish and his dad was Greek. Second thing about Timothy is his dad was not a spiritual leader. 2 Timothy 1 commends his mother's faith and his grandmother's faith, but his dad's faith isn't even mentioned, and so it's most likely that Timothy's dad was not a Christ follower. Third thing we need to know about Timothy is he's young, he's physically weak, and he's easily intimidated. If you read through Paul's correspondence with Timothy, he urges him towards confidence over and over and over again. He even encourages him to look after his own weak health, which is a trait that he and Paul shared. Timothy was timid as a young man, as a young leader. Paul understood what that was like too. But the big trump card for Timothy that Paul sees is that Timothy has a huge heart for God. And it was that heart that attracted Paul to him. He calls Timothy my true son in the faith, my dear son. So even though Timothy isn't Paul's biological son, those words are an indication of how deeply Paul thinks about him. And so in many ways, Paul has this really fatherly heart for Timothy. He wants to encourage him. He wants him to be successful in his ministry. He wants to protect him from the people who would do him wrong. He has these big fatherly hopes for Timothy. And if you read 2 Timothy straight through, you get a sense of Paul's deep and desperate personal responsibility to care for this young man like any father would. And as the sun sets on Paul's life, he tries to get one last word in to encourage him. So how should we approach Timothy? Because we're not in that relationship. New Testament scholar Philip Towner says this. He says, we are not the beloved of Paul in the same way that Timothy was, but we are the beloved of God. And we are involved in the same mission that Timothy was. Everything written to Timothy, every bit of theology ethical exhortation and practical advice was also written, even if unintentionally, to us. I find that encouraging. Second piece of context we need is, where does Timothy serve? Hey, what's he doing? Paul discipled Timothy in the gospel for 11 intense, very formative years. Timothy was with Paul in the ups and the downs. He was chained next to him in prison. Like, he has seen Paul through everything. And because Paul knew Timothy's heart for the gospel, Paul entrusts Timothy with the one church that has the greatest possibility for explosive growth or corrosive chaos. He entrusts him with the church in Ephesus. Ancient cities battled for influence like modern cities might vie for the NFL draft. Like, here's our amazing people, here's what's going on in our city, here's why you need to know what's happening here. But Ephesus has a little bit of an edge to it. It's got a little bit of an octane booster in the tank. Ephesus is on the move. It's a city that's up and coming. Ephesus is desperate to prove itself. Ephesus welcomed all philosophies, all religions, all ways of thinking. The temple of Artemis would have been like the MGM Grand of the Greek world. Their marketplace made Ephesus a commercial hub, and their 24,000-seat 
arena was the largest in the ancient world. So let's put this together. You have a city that's desperate to prove itself and a young pastor who's desperate to make a difference. And dying in his dark, dank Roman prison cell, what is aging Paul going to say to this young pastor? While the Roman emperor slips deeper into madness, targeting Christians all over the empire, what words can Paul give to young Timothy to inspire hope, confidence, and gospel clarity? 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. You can follow along. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's kind of like Paul's little catch-all, like, hey, if you didn't get it, just pray about it. (laughs) Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we're going to get into these last two verses, 14 and 15, and that's going to be where we hang our hat this morning. So let's get into it. He starts off in verse 14 with two imperative verbs. He says, remind them of these things and charge them. We're meant to see these things together. So what things? That's his context. Verses 1 through 13 is all about suffering. This is our road. Remind them to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In verse 14 is Paul tightening the lens and he gets insanely practical. He talks about words. Paul's talked about this before. In his first letter to Timothy, here's what he wrote. 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 6, 4, he says, or he gives him a warning about an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. In his letter to Titus, another young pastor that Paul mentored, he says, avoid foolish controversies because they're unprofitable and worthless. (laughs) But then here in 2 Timothy, 
He uses stronger language than he's ever used before. It's not just Timothy's leadership that's at stake here. Paul warns that quarreling does what? Ruins its hearers. Ruins. Not frustrates, not angers, not distracts, but ruins them. That's a very strong statement. The Greek word there is catastrophe. It's the English word catastrophe. Literally, it's the tearing down. It's the opposite of what Paul says in Ephesians 4 when he tells them that the church should be built up. A catastrophe is when you see a crumbling building and somebody comes along and goes, it's a life that's about to implode and then you add another burden to it. It's a catastrophe, Paul says. So Paul says that when it comes to leading a church in crazy, controversial, contentious first century Ephesus, quarreling over trivialities is nothing short of catastrophic If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, which I know is not everyone, but if that's you, you need to know that those who are listening to our words, reading our posts, watching our gestures, inferring from our attitudes, it's a catastrophe when we never speak the life-changing, soul-saving words of the gospel because our mouths are too crowded. It's a catastrophe when Christians forget the language of the gospel. It's a catastrophe when we quarrel over passing issues rather than contending for eternal issues. It's a catastrophe when the weak in our world are left weaker by the truths we're not saying, the joy we're not offering, and the hope that we're not giving. My experience, and maybe this is yours, is that most worldly quarrels don't promote the victory of the gospel. Most worldly quarrels promote the victory of my own pride. (laughs) The gospel calls me to be more eager to fight for others than with others. The gospel calls me to rescue the lost around me rather than destroy them. The gospel calls me to be known by my outreach, not my outrage. Catastrophe is how Paul describes it. Tragedy also fits. Distraction, missed opportunities. And so his words to Timothy are, don't give those quarrels one minute of your time. They're not worth it. The stakes are too high. A servant of Christ gives up worldly pursuits to exchange worthy pursuits. So what are those? If he's not supposed to be chasing Ephesian headlines, what's young Timothy supposed to do? And now we get to the heart of Paul's message in verse 15. He says, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul holds out two truths for Timothy. Two really great truths. And again, they're almost fatherly. He says, I want you to be approved by God and I want you to be unashamed before men. What great hopes. Let's take them each in turn quickly. It's important to see that Paul's goal for Timothy is approval before God, not approval before men. It's a good little insight that we need to see. 
Lots of young leaders seek the approval of man only to see it fly away like dust. And the Greek here almost means approval as if you've passed a test, as if you've gone through something that's very difficult for you, Timothy. That's how you get approvedness, is through suffering. What's his point? Gospel loyalty often brings cultural contempt. Jesus even said that. He says, this world's going to hate you, which is certainly true of Timothy in first century Ephesus. Abide in me anyway, Jesus says. Then, having passed his test, Paul's second aspiration for Timothy comes into view. He says, I want you to be unashamed. Oh, man. Like, every young leader wants that. I do. Unashamed. Like, really confident that you're making the right decision really confident that you know that the right people are around you, really confident that you're moving the right direction, that even though the road is tough, there's a reward at the end. And you go, okay, Paul, sounds great. How do I get there? These are great dreams for your spiritual son, but how does that happen? And in a city like Ephesus in the first century or North Canton in 2021, what chance does somebody have? And then here comes the phrase that deserves our full attention. Rightly handling the word of truth. You grammar nerds know that is a participial phrase. (laughs) It's a phrase that comes under the main verb. Rightly handling. This is what this looks like. So as a follower of Christ, how I handle this matters. (laughs) How you handle this matters. If you want to make a difference in your world, it starts here. Having a copy isn't enough. Knowing a lot about it isn't enough. Having a quaint verse framed on your wall at home isn't enough. I believe our world needs real hope, don't you? We don't need quaint, cute hope. We need hard-fought hope. How we handle the gospel is everything. You will never impact your world until his word impacts you. But there's that phrase, rightly handling. That seems very weighty, doesn't it? Rightly handling the word of truth. We kind of have to follow his implication here because if there's a right way to handle this thing, there's a wrong way to handle it, right? Well, turns out there's infinitely wrong ways to handle the Bible. Let's name three. I'm going to give you three very common wrong handlings of scripture and these will form where we go next these three quick word pictures for you i think a lot of people look at the bible like a lump of clay and we go well my job is to form this into kind of what i want it to mean right so i'm going to kind of craft it i'm going to look for the stuff that i agree with and rule out the stuff that i don't and it's my job to figure out how i can make this into something well the truth is this isn't the clay I'm the clay. This doesn't, or I don't form this. This forms me. So it's not a lump of clay. Second misconception is that the word of God can be like a personal platform. What I mean by this is like, well, I read the word so that, you know, I can get a better understanding of myself, right? I can, I can have, you know, greater clarity into who I am can lift myself up, can give me some things, right? So I go to this seeking a transaction, Well, yeah, the Bible does talk about you. 
But this is primarily a book about the creator of the universe's self-disclosure. This is about him. God's word is not designed to make you happy first. It's designed to make you holy first and happy later. It's an important distinction. Last misconception, and then we'll get into it. And this one's probably the most common, and I know it's true for a lot of us on many days, is that we look at this thing and we imagine that this is like a dead and dusty scroll. And it's not living and active. It's dead and it's dusty. And it maybe meant a lot to the original audience thousands and thousands of years ago, but it doesn't have a lot to say about marriage and doesn't have a lot to say about how I do my business or how I'm supposed to love my neighbor. or It just tells me to do these things and then it's buried in some other stuff that I don't understand. It's to that that we're going to sort of turn our attention this morning a little bit. So if these are wrongly dividing the word of truth, what does it mean to rightly divide the word of truth? So I want to take the next 15 minutes or so and I want to name just three essentials that have to be in place for you to rightly divide the word of truth. We could take like an hour and a half on this and I really wish we could, um, but we're going to just do three this morning and um, buy me a cup of coffee and we'll talk about the others later or something. But I want to give you these three because these are the ones that are probably the most important when you think about how do you extract meaning from God's word. Three essentials, and they all start with the same letter, so for you note-takers, you're going to love it. Um, I tried to, like, twist it and be like, maybe I can get one to start with the letter Q, just to throw everybody like a curveball, but didn't work out. So, they all three start with the letter C. Three essentials, here you go. First essential, content. Content. I have two questions that I ask every time I study. And this is true whether it's like personal devotions for me or whether it's like preparing for a group or it's preparing for a sermon. Two questions I always ask every time I come to the Word of God. And I want to give them to you. They're simple, but they're really, really helpful. What is this talking about? And then what is it saying about what it's talking about? Okay, this is how you keep things online, how you keep things on track, how you keep things close together. What is it talking about? It's usually one word. And then what is it saying about what it's talking about? That's usually a sentence using that word. So before we get into scripture, let me give you something easy. So if I was standing up here and I gestured at the back and I said, fire, every one of you would know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That's very clear use of language. You'd probably all do the same thing. You would look for yourself, kind of turn around, and then you would get up and head for the doors. Okay, so let's apply those two questions to that statement. What is that talking about? Fire. What am I saying about what I'm talking about? There is a fire and you need to get up and move. Right? This is super simple. Language 101. What is it talking about? What is it saying about what it's talking about? Before we get to something harder, there's two assumptions underneath here that we need to clear up. So just track with me for a minute. This shouldn't be controversial, but they are. Assumption number one, language has definite meaning. You know what I mean when I say fire, right? You don't get to make it up. It's clear. But then assumption number two related to that is that the meaning is not determined by the hearer or the reader. The meaning is determined by the speaker or the writer. Make sense? I started with meaning in my head and I told you fire. And because we all speak the same language, most of us, and you know what I mean when I say that, you know you have something that you need to do. Okay, that's how this kind of works. 
The principle underneath that is called authorial intent, if you're really curious. It means my job is to figure out what the writer or the speaker meant when they originally communicated. Let's try this with another example. So I'm a big Beatles fan. Any Beatles fans in the room? Thank you. Good. I feel validated. I was really nervous because, like, you never know. So the first CD that I ever bought with any of my money was a Beatles album. I went to Acme Clicks when they still sold CDs, and on track seven of that wonderful CD is the seven-minute, 11-second song called Hey Jude. If you don't know it, you need to know it. It's a great song. Paul's piano, it's a great writing. It's got that big build. And then like four minutes of na-na-na-na-na-na over and over and over again, right? It's brilliant, okay? It's a great song. You love it. That's why you're laughing. What does it mean? Now, this is where this gets tricky, It's not about what he's saying, it's about what he means. So for this, we go to authorial intent. 1968, John Lennon just left his wife. So Paul, known as Uncle Paul to John's son, Julian, went to John's home. He was five at the time, Julian was. On the way, Paul was trying to think about what words he was going to give to offer Julian some comfort and some joy to look past the negativity in his life. Here's what Paul later said to an interviewer. He says, I started with the idea, hey, Jules, which was Julian. Hey, try and deal with this terrible thing. I know you're not happy, but it'll be okay. I always feel sorry for kids when families split up. Interesting. So let's take these two questions. With authorial intent still buzzing in your head, what is this song about? It's about sadness. You've got those great lyrics where he says, take a sad song and make it better, right? So with authorial intent, knowing that background into that content, what's he talking about? Sadness. What's he saying about what he's talking about? Hey, the best way to get past sadness, to deal with it, is to stay positive. Just really good words from Paul. Right? I don't know how theologically deep that is, but hey, it works. And it's why that song has such universal appeal. You get it? Now let's go to God's word. Because we're going to do a biblical example of this. Let's jump to something fun. How about David and Bathsheba? We alluded to this last week, but in case you missed it or you don't know the story, here you go. It's springtime, and King David is at home in Jerusalem. He's the only guy in town because every other man, including Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is out fighting. David's in his castle, twiddling his thumbs. Late one afternoon, David looks across the way, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And like an idiot, he sends someone to go get her. So she comes, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and then to cover it up, he kills her husband until he gets busted by the prophet Nathan. So you're reading your Bible, and you're going, now what is that doing in here? Sounds like Game of Thrones. Like, what's happening? I don't understand this. What does that have to do with my life? What could God want me to get from that? Well, what's it talking about? Sin. One word. What's it talking about? Sin. You can even say lust if you want to. Sin. What's it saying about what it's talking about? No one is immune to sin. It's a good lesson. It's a good thing to hang on to, or if you want to get catchy with it, rising high in the world doesn't mean you can't fall deep into sin. Or if you want to zoom out even further, even kings need a savior. And so this whole David and Bathsheba narrative has actually a little bit less to do with David and Bathsheba and more to do about the savior who's going to come through David's line. 
A whole lot more here than just a scandalous sex scene. So again, those two questions. What is it talking about? Usually one word. And then what is it saying about what it's talking about? Usually a sentence that surrounds the word. So that's essential number one is content. Essential number two, context. Context. What do I mean by context? Everything that's around something that gives that something clarity. That's context. So for example, if I say the word trunk, trunk, that could mean at least five things in English, probably a couple more if you think about it. It could mean the trunk of a tree. It could mean an elephant's trunk. It could mean like a human trunk, like a core. It could mean like a luggage trunk. It could mean the trunk of a car. So if I just say the word trunk with nothing around it, it's not very helpful to you. How about if I tighten it one click further and I say, open the trunk? Well, we ruled out a couple of them, unless you want to get gross. <laughs> it probably means either trunk of a car or like a luggage trunk. Okay, so we've narrowed it. What if we go one click further and I say, before you back the car in, open the trunk? Now what am I talking about? Car trunk. That's context. The power of understanding what's around something to give meaning to the thing that you're actually seeing. So biblical example of context. I'll give you a bad one, and then we'll get to a good one. So true story. Um, somebody sent me a, a picture once, and they wanted to know what I thought about it. And they had been going through a Christian bookstore, and they took a picture of like one of those um, like desktop scripture calendars. You know, they're like that big, and they have like a little verse for the day, and then like a little saying. And it's like, oh, cool, you tear it off and whatever. So like this one, it says... All these I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me, which is like Matthew 4, 9. And I'm like, wow. Like, and they want to know what I thought of that. Matthew 4, 9. I'm like, worship, good. Good things happen when you worship God. Like, all things I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Anybody know what's happening in Matthew 4? Matthew 4 is the temptation of Jesus, okay? Where Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to worship him. And so Matthew 4, 9, all these things I will give to you if you bow down and worship me, that doesn't come from the mouth of God. That actually comes from the mouth of the enemy. And I'm like, how'd that end up on a calendar? That's actually a little spooky. Now, I know how it happened because some well-meaning calendar creator sat down with Google and said biblical verses on worship, and this one came up, and they dropped it in, and that's how that stuff happens. Bad context. Context matters, like a lot. Okay, so let's go back to David and Bathsheba. To get at the David and Bathsheba story, to really, really understand what's happening there, let's add some context to it. It's helpful to know that at this point, David has been king for 20 years. He's 50 years old, and he has known zero military defeats. So let's just sit with that for a minute. David's a leader. He's 50 years old. He's been king for 20 years, and he's never been defeated. Doesn't that kind of add color to why he's so bold in this moment? He's just prideful. He's untouchable, or he thinks he is. He thinks he's invincible. And you know, when you're untouchable, God becomes small and your pride swells. And so right after this, when Nathan comes and confronts David, and then David has to square with this whole affair, pun absolutely intended, he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Why the bathing imagery? 
Think about that. Why does David say, wash me and cleanse me? How did this whole thing start with him? What did he see across the rooftops? What was she doing? Context matters. Knowing how this whole thing fits together is incredibly helpful for determining meaning. And so to have the geographical context, the cultural context, the historical context, even the theological context is so helpful. Now I know what just happened in half of your brains. You went, that's easy for you. You're a pastor. Because <laughs> that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. So let's bust this myth really quick. I am no smarter than anybody else in this room. Okay? It is work for me. I love it. I love studying God's word, and I love getting in there, right? But it is work for me, right? I'm a little bit more like a car mechanic where, like, I kind of know what's wrong a little bit quicker, maybe. Or, like, I can get there a little quicker because I know how to use the tools, and I just kind of know what to listen for. But if you knew the amount of resources that are available to you that could be at your doorstep with Amazon God Bless It Prime two-day shipping... <laughs> like Luther and Augustine and Calvin and all these theologians and pastors and scholars across time would kill for what could show up at your house tomorrow. These things are available to you. And so as a church, we've actually created an Amazon idealist. I just call it Brandon's Study Tools. And there's six kind of essential tools that are readable, they're affordable, they're like really accessible, and they're on Amazon. And if you want that list, our online pastor, Matt, is going to put it in the comment thread here this morning if you're watching online. And if you want those tools, just like email me, just brandon at ncchapel.com, and I will just send you the list. And you can go check it out for yourself. It's hard work to study scripture. We should never, ever get into this and go, that's what it means. I'm good. Just so you hear this from me as your pastor, there's a lot of things I try to get right. I want to lead our church well. I want to lead our staff well, right? I'm going to get all this right. But if I get this wrong, mm, like this is the thing that keeps me up at night. So join me in my misery. No, I'm joking. <laughs> if Paul's words to Timothy tell us anything is that getting this right is good for us. It's hard work, but it's very, very good. So that's essential number two is context. Essential number three, and this is the last one for today, character. Character. This is the third and most overlooked essential, and I think it's probably the most important. Here's what I mean. Who you are is more important than what you know. Who you are is more important than what you know. Knowing God's word and knowing what it says is important. Knowing what it means is important, but there's something more essential than that. I want to read Proverbs chapter 2, just 1 through 5. Just listen. He says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like silver, if you search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Did you catch all those words? Like seek for it, incline your ear for it like hidden treasure. Seek it out. What's he saying? But this isn't an academic pursuit. This is a love affair between the creator God of the universe and my lost, rebellious heart. Who you are is more important than what you know. And so the question has to be, do you seek it? Do you want this? 
Do you really, really want it? Do you believe that this matters? Because you can get it all right. You can have bookshelves full of books. You can attend church every Sunday the rest of your life and then leave all your worldly goods to missions. But if all of that isn't motivated by a love for Jesus, it doesn't matter one iota. Do you love him? You seek out his word. Do you treasure it? Who you are is more important than what you know. And so Paul, who knew Timothy's character, he could call his spiritual son to rightly divide the word of truth. And because he knew his character, he could send him into Ephesus and say, go get him. God's word is never bound, he says. So here's where we want to land the plane for today. Um, when I first we started working on this message and trying to figure out how this message fit in this series and then how this series fits into this larger goal of building up where we want to go this year as a church, um, I really feel like it's helpful to give this particular session um, a little bit more legs, like a little more gas, just get a little further down the field than just, you know, five minutes on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, so about two years ago, um, I came across this book. I'm always on the lookout for helpful little books. And this one is kind of top of the list for me. It's called um, Before You Open Your Bible. Okay, it is a grand total of like 87 pages. And it deals with this idea of character first. Like how do we become the kind of person that God could use in his word? Not just get the stuff. How do I get this right, my heart right? And so what we did is we went ahead and purchased 100 copies of this book. Um, and we want to give them away to anybody who wants them. Okay, and so we've got 50 out there right now for this service. We've got 50 that we're saving for next service. And no, you can't have them because you got here quicker. So um, please be patient. Um, if you can't get it in the service or if we run out or if you've got to get home or whatever, um, we're going to post a link online. And in addition to that, uh, Matt Brumfield, who's our online community pastor, is going to be leading a group through this book as an online group study. Um, just to poke into this idea really hard about what does it mean for God to develop my character as I understand his word. Not just all the facts, but to become the right person. And here's why we're driving this so hard, just to come back to where we started. A chaotic world needs a strong church. And the most essential tool that we have at our disposal to build up, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, is God's word. So we're going hard after this this next couple of months, in person and online, and I want you to be a part of it. You don't want to miss it. So before we close, I'm going to pray in just a second. I do need to ask you, everything we've talked about is linguistic study, <laughs> and it's helpful tools and all of that. But I'm not naive enough to think that everybody in this room believes that there is a God who loves them desperately. And it's true. This isn't just a couple thousand pages of text that were translated from Hebrew and then into Greek and then Greek into modern English and we buy these things and we put them on our desks. That's, there's something deeper behind this is there's a God who loves you enough to send his son to die for you and whether you've been just checking Jesus out or maybe you've been a part of church forever, I wonder what does it mean to say, okay, Lord, I need to really reprioritize your word in my life. I feel that a lot. And I do this for a living. There is a God who loves you. 
He loves you enough to send his son to die for you so that you could have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed the minute you close your eyes. Guys, I know this world is crazy and it feels like first century Ephesus in so many ways. We have hope because we have a God who is sovereign and he wants to know you and be known by you. And to that I want to pray this morning. Bow with me if you would. Oh, Father, is just good to sit and to cling to your sovereignty, to know that over time and millennia and cultures and distances, and you are sovereign. You've never stopped being sovereign. Your sovereignty just keeps going and going and going, and you care for us. But God, even in that, that your sovereignty is a loving sovereignty. You pursue your people. You care about us even though we don't deserve it. And so we just say thank you for what you do. God, would you work in this room and those watching online? Father, show us what we need to think about. Show us what we need to open our hands and give up. You've done everything for us. And so we just say, here's our lives and use us. Bless us today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.